there are a few times in your life where uh, you will remember everything about a specific moment for the rest of your life. Um, because it's, it's, in, it's in those very important moments that like everything changes. And sometimes those are like good moments, and sometimes those are hard moments, but you remember those moments that everything changes. Whether it's like even in college where you, when you have that kind of chance encounter at a career fair booth next week, and you'll look back at that moment forever and like, that's when I met that person that led to that job and led to that career. It's that moment you locked, locked eyes with that young lady across the room on that dark and dreary night. Anyway, there's, <laughs> there's those moments. There, there's moments where you just receive some news, some good news maybe, that changed everything. It's safe to say what we're about to read uh, we're reading about one of those moments for Moses' life tonight. A moment where everything changed when he met God on a mountain and God revealed who he was to Moses. We're going to look at this passage and it is such a wonderful, heavy, amazing passage. There's too much to study for sure and even just in the few minutes we have. So we're going to try to move quickly, but what we hope to see is what God is revealing about himself to Moses. And through Moses to Israel, and through these pages, even to us tonight, we're going to move quickly and try to get some glimpses of what God shows about himself. So we're going to talk about God's heart, God's voice, and God's name as we look at this passage. So let me read it for us. So I'm going to start at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, and then we're going to read through the first several verses of chapter 3. Here we go. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey and to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now... Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. 
And also I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. And I I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and these are the words of the Lord, and they will stand forever. It's an amazing passage. There's a phrase that has sort of come into the, like, zeitgeist of culture. I don't even know if that's the right word, but it's like into just like the ether of culture these days that I'm, I'm not totally mad about. Uh, it's a phrase that I think we overuse. We definitely overuse it. Um, but I'm also like, I'm okay with this one because I like the heart of it. The phrase is, I feel seen. Can I ever say that? Yeah, I know you do. I hear it. I feel seen. I felt seen. Um, like, for instance, this morning, I was standing in line at the Douth at Starbucks, about to hang out with one of you this morning for coffee, and the girl in front of me at Starbucks, she ordered um, a sweet cream vanilla cold brew with light ice because she didn't want the ice to melt and change the flavor of the cold brew. Same, girl. I felt seen in that moment. You feel seen by a lot of people that you connect with, right? And this is the reason I actually really like this phrase. Because it's actually a very biblical idea. Like the desire to be seen. Like in some ways, it's the thing we're most scared of and we most long for, to be seen. The desire to be known. And actually, this is exactly what God himself provides for his people all throughout Scripture. We see that God is a seeing God. He describes himself that way a lot. He's very aware of the needs of his people. And more than just being a God who sees, he is actually a God who acts on what he sees. At this junction of the story, Israel has been suffering for many, many years at the hands of the Egyptians. And perhaps the Hebrews are wondering, where is God in all of this? Maybe you wonder the same at times. Does God see me? Like, is God aware of the loneliness that I feel right now? How isolated I feel? Does God know what's going on in my relationships? 
is God aware of the disaster show at home right now? Like, does God know about my depression and my anxiety? Like, does he know? Is he aware? Some of you maybe uh, would not identify yourself as a Christian. And so you wonder, if there is a God, does he really see? Like, does he, is he actually concerned with my life? Pay close attention to the verbs in those first few verses. When the people of Israel groaned out to God because of their slavery, their cry reached God. In verse 24, the verbs. God heard. God remembered. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. This is a hugely important transitional paragraph in the book of Exodus. Up until now, we focused so far in our study. This is our third week. But we studied uh, Israel's kind of like plight. And then we narrowed in on Moses' own mistakes last week. And now for the first time in Exodus, God becomes an active character in this narrative. The Israelites cried out and God heard and He remembered and He saw and He knew. They were seen. Whether they felt it or not. You are seen. Whether you feel seen or not. God knows. And now in this passage, God is going to act. God's heart, that's what we're talking about first, just briefly, God's heart has always been for His people. He hears them and He remembers His covenant commitment to them. And, and the God of Israel in this passage is the same God that we cry out to today in Jesus' name. God really does hear. And I just want to just make that point. God really does hear. And I don't know if you believe that. I don't know if you have acted on that in a while, but God actually hears your, your cries. God is actually really concerned and acquainted with the things that you're going through. Do you believe that? He sees and He hears. His heart has always been for His people. He's listening. He's aware. And now this God begins to draw near to His people through this mediator. Now, years have passed since we left Moses last week. Moses turned 40 in a verse last week. And I told you that's how life works. You just, you turn 40. Believe me. And now, several more years are passing by. We're about to go through 40 years of Moses' life before next week. And so he's going to be 80 when he goes back to Egypt. But Moses is at this point living the most ordinary life. Not fancy at all. He's out serving as a shepherd. He's out in Midian. He's gotten married and he's out in the mountains, just working with some sheep for a long time, for 40 years, when suddenly everything changed. And it was in the very moment that God spoke up when Moses heard his voice. What happened in verse 2? The angel appeared to him in a flame of fire from this bush, and he saw that the bush was burning and not consumed. There's so many, so many things going on right here. But first, Moses, uh, he's just living his life. And God intentionally, totally interrupts him. Isn't that like God? Moses just out there doing his thing, and God completely interrupts his ordinary life. And he speaks to him from this bush that was burning but not burnt. It was on fire, but it was not consumed by fire. Now, Scholars make a lot out of this. They talk about how it represents, like the fire represents the presence of God all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and you can definitely see that in different places as it comes along. 
Or one scholar I read, an Old Testament guy said, like, maybe the fire is representative of Israel as they are being taken through the furnace. God is reminding them that they will not be consumed through this furnace fire of their life. And all that's good, and all that's great, and all that's probably really true. But also, it's just kind of really cool. <laughs> like, there's this bush that's on fire, and it's not consumed. That's pretty cool. Uh, and God speaks from it. Um, I, uh, I have a solo stove. This may or may not be related, but I love my little solo stove. Y'all are aware of those. You, I'm sure your dad got one for Christmas. Uh, I've had one for a little while, maybe a year. And some of you have been around my solo stove in the backyard. I really love it. They call it smokeless. Not true. Like not, that's totally false advertising. But it is like pretty great. It gets really hot. It's just this little metal pot. I don't know. And it's got this ventilation system. And you throw in some logs. You get some stuff lit up in there. And after about like, you have to kind of mess with it for about 30 minutes in my experience. But after about 30, 40 minutes, 43 minutes, uh, it, when those like orange embers really settle into the bottom of that solo stove, like it doesn't matter what you put in there, it will be consumed very quickly, right? Like, throw in a log, poof. Throw in a cardboard box, poof. A cat, like, whatever, whatever goes into the stove, instantly consumed. Um, sometimes I like to wait till like, late at night, let the, let the embers die down, and there, there's just, like, two or three little pieces of orange in there, you know? And I think, I wonder if I can light a log on that. You can. Every time. It's pretty great. I love my solo stove. I can't imagine a fire burning in this way that will not consume everything that it touches. And by the way, neither can Moses, which is why he does a double take at this bush. Like, I love the commentary. I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. It's like, it catches him off guard. And it's from that moment where God catches his attention, he calls him out of this ordinary day, and he speaks. He says, Moses, Moses, which is this like double thing when God says somebody's name twice. It does mean listen up, kind of like when your parents say it, but it also is like a, an endearment thing. He's inviting Moses into a conversation. God shows up, God speaks up, and Moses hears his voice. This is the moment that changes everything. And before we talk about what God said to Moses, I want to pause for a couple of minutes for a really important application and some of you have heard me kind of talk about this, this verse before because it's so important to me. When we come to passages like this one, um, sometimes what I can think is like, if God would speak like that, I would have an easier time believing. How come he doesn't speak like that anymore? And you look at like Abraham's life. And God brings him up and tells him to look at the stars like Mufasa and Simba. Or you think about like Elijah's life and God keeps showing up in these miraculous ways. Or you come to the New Testament and this Jesus, Jesus is there and he's in the flesh and he's with these disciples and he's speaking to them and he's teaching them. And you think, well, if I could experience something like that, it would be much easier to believe if God would be that audible. I think about when the three disciples went up on the mountain with Jesus, his kind of inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up on the mountain, and, and the text tells us that 
He's transfigured before him. They saw his glory, the glory of Jesus, in a way that no one else had ever seen on earth. And then in the same passage, it says, and Moses and Elijah were there. Wild stuff happened. We studied this passage a year ago. And then they hear the voice of God on the mountain where God speaks and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. If we were on the mountain, like maybe it would be easier to believe. You ever think that way? I want to encourage you. If you think, I would believe if I heard his voice like that, I want to encourage you with something. Um, Years after that experience on the mountain, Peter, James, and John all went to write about it. Peter wrote a couple of letters in the New Testament. And in one of those letters, he talks about that experience. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he's, he's basically telling his audience, which is like the scattered, doubting group of Christians in the first century, and he's telling them about his experiences with Jesus. And he says to them, I heard his voice. I was on the mountain. We saw the transfiguration. We saw the glory of Jesus. We heard the vo- I heard it with my own ears. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then something Peter says in the very next verse has gotten to me over the last few years, and I can't shake it. I'm paraphrasing here. You can look it up in 2 Peter 1. But he says, and you have something even better than what I had on the mountain." Because you have the Scriptures. Do you hear what Peter is saying? He was there. He was on the mountain. He heard the voice from heaven. He saw the transfigured glory reveal Jesus Christ. And he says, and you have something even better than my experiences. You have the very words of God. Here's the very important point. If you want to hear the voice of God, you don't have to wake up before sunrise and drive to pretty place. Though that's fine. You can get a nice Instagram pic out of it. You don't have to go looking on a mountain hoping that you hear a whisper of God. If you want to hear the voice of God in your life, He has already spoken. And we have it. It's a very, very important thing to know and to believe because God really does still speak today. His voice is here in the pages of the Old and New Testament with clarity and authority. And this is a real application from this text. I'm not trying to stretch and I'm not trying to guilt. I want you to see that God actually still does speak. You can hear His voice. I can hear His voice. I forget this. I want to encourage you this week. Let God interrupt your ordinary with his extraordinary words. I don't have time, I know. I'm too busy, I know. I need more sleep, I know. Let God interrupt with his voice. There's a lot of ways we can apply this. I was thinking this morning as I was walking over to Douthat, this is just a thought, Everywhere on this campus is about a five-minute walk. Some are ten, depending on where you're going. Um, Some seven. Some six. I don't know. 
some not, I'm just saying numbers now. And what I see on campus more and more and more and more and more, and I see it in my own life, is like we have such trouble with silence, right? We have such a hard time not listening to something, which is fine. Like I get in the car, I turn on something. I get out of the car, I turn on something. I get in my office, I turn on something. Like we're always kind of listening to something. Why, why not give five of those minutes to listening to Scripture? Like when you're walking from core to the library, just pop in an AirPod and pull up the Bible app. Streetlights. Y'all know I love streetlights. Y'all check it out. They've got an Exodus read-through. It's awesome. It's called The Blueprint. So go find Exodus. But this is also like why we need God's Word in community. We have a hard time doing this on our own. Go read the Bible with a friend. Devo Drive-By, great plug for that in the mornings. Just a time set aside just to do that on Wednesday mornings. But also just grab a friend at night. Hey, I'm having trouble like reading the Word, and I really would like to. Would you read a chapter with me tonight? Read it. Maybe even talk about it for a couple of minutes. This is why small groups are so important. Not just RUF small groups. There's a lot of great small groups happening on this campus. Small group in your local church. This is why church is so important. We forget, and God knows, and He reminds us in His Word over and over again, and we need a local body. We need to sit under the preached Word on a regular basis to hear God's Word. We need it. just want to encourage you with that. Let God interrupt your ordinary mundane life with his extraordinary word, just as he does with Moses. Now back to this text. When God spoke, what did he say? And this is our final point, but I'm going to take a few minutes on this. He, he reveals his name. After God says, Moses, Moses, he has him take off his sandals because he's standing in the presence of God. And he begins to tell him who he is. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face. The Lord reminds him how he's seen the affliction of his people. He's heard their cry, and now he's come to act on their behalf. And that's what the rest of the book is about. But now for the first time, God enlists Moses in his plan. And he says, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. And you're going to tell him, it's time for us to go. And Moses reacts exactly how you or I would react. And he's like, I don't know about that plan. <laughs> By the way, sometimes we also think if God would just tell us his will for our life, then we would like know what to do. Like, wouldn't it be nice if God told you his will for what you're supposed to do when you graduate? You would know exactly what to do? No, you wouldn't. Because God tells Moses what to do. Okay, you're going to go to Pharaoh. Hard pass. Like, even, even when God does speak in this, like, with clarity, we're like, eh, I don't know about that, Lord. Um, but God comforts Moses, and he says, I'll be with you. And he tells him his name. Now, the name thing, this is all, this is all we're going to do the rest of our time. The name thing's a big deal. Names are a big deal in the Bible. Names are a much bigger deal in those societies than they are today in our society. Names meant something. Your name may mean something. It may have real significance. My name means nothing. Reed. Like what it, it's like, I asked my mom once, why, why read? And she was like, I don't, I don't know. Um, we, she, literally, this is her story. I was pregnant, and I remember we were like walking like downtown somewhere, and I heard a mom say, stop, Reed. And I was like, that works. That's my name, so that's pretty much it. In the Bible, 
<laughs> names mean something. A name represented someone's identity. It showed who they were. And so Moses asks for God's name. Now, he does this because he's living in a polytheistic society. And he's saying, well, who are you, God? And by God's grace, he tells him. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. If I come to the people and I say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, hang with me here for, in my page, it's like this paragraph, okay? Hang with me on this. The name of God, as he's revealing here, is I am. What do we make of that? Now, I am is a derivative of the Hebrew word to be. <laughs> I am to be. Or it's like God is saying, being, I am who I am. All right. Or some people will translate it like, I am who I've always been. The four Hebrew consonants that make up the to be are yod, heid, vav, heid. Now, when you translate that to, transliterate that to English, it's Y-H-W-H. You add in a few vowels, as we have done, and it's Yahweh. You see where that came from? Those are based on the Hebrew consonants for to be. We don't know how the Hebrews would have pronounced this because they didn't say it. When they would come up to this word in the Hebrew Scriptures, they would not say it. And so what they started doing is they would, they would substitute the word Adonai, which is my Lord, instead of this word. So at some point in history, Christians began to add vowels to those consonants, and that's how we got Yahweh or Jehovah or something like that. But in most of your translations, instead of writing Yahweh every time God's name comes up, you'll usually see the capital L-O-R-D, and that's in keeping with that tradition of Adonai, my Lord, as a substitute for Yahweh. Does that make sense a little bit? Um, that's important, and it'll come back here in just a second, but what God's revealing to his people through this name is a lot. Like, we could study this forever and ever and ever, and I think we will for all of eternity, but let me tell you four quick things that God's revealing about himself with this name, I am. They all start with the letter I. If you like notes and keeping notes, here they are. First, the great I am is independent. I am. He's independent. He determines his own existence. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. He's completely self-existent. Second, he's infinite. There's no beginning or ending with God. God was not created. He is the creator. God was not spoken into existence. He spoke all things into existence. He has been and always will be. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is I am following. Three, he's immutable. That means he's unchanging. He does not change. He's fixed, constant, unvaried. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am. You, you hear how these work a little bit? And fourth, he is incomparable. Now, a better word probably, uh, but it starts with a T, transcendent. Let's say incomparable, slash transcendent. Transcendent means that God is um, above all things. Like he's autonomous from his creation. The I am is above all earthly powers. No one can ascend to him. No one can reach him. He is transcendent, incomparable. The only way that we could ever have a relationship with him is if he condescends to us. The name of the living God is I 
am. Independent, infinite, immutable, incomparable. And that's just scratching the surface. And this is so important because God does not say, I am who you want me to be. He says, I am who I am. We don't get to create a God that makes sense to us. That we can explain away or water down to make a little bit more, like, less offensive to my friends. Like, we don't get to make a God that makes me feel better. That's literally idolatry. It's making a God in our own image or after our own desires. We don't determine who God is. We relate to Him as He's revealed Himself to be. Now, my dumb illustration for this, I've heard it put this way, it's like, uh, I've heard a version of this. I'm stealing the idea, but here's my version. It's like if I married my wife, um, which is coming up on 18 years in a couple of months. Like, we've been married almost 18 years. You don't have to do that. She's not here right now. Um, but, but, and you're going to not clap when I keep going with this because let's say I married my wife 18 years ago, and right after we got married, maybe even on our honeymoon, I'm like, Kelly, I love you for just who you are, exactly as you are. Except, I really would like for you to like the same shows that I like. And I really would like for you to want to visit the places that I want to visit. And I really would like for you to laugh at my jokes. And I really want you to cook the food that I want. And also, could you change your hair color just for like 30, 50 years, like... And, like, your, your fashion a little bit. Like, could you, I would like for you to dress like this. Uh, and also, could you speak in an Australian accent? She would look at me and say, I don't think this is going to work as a marriage. Why? Because we understand that loving someone means you are loving them for who they are, right? You're not trying to change them into the person that you want them to be. And if that's true of human relationships... How much more is it true to how we relate to God himself? We cannot change who God is to make ourselves feel better or more comfortable. If we make him into the image that we want him to be, we have made for ourselves another God, a false God. And instead, we relate to him for who he is. And now he's revealed himself to be. And as we relate to God for who he is, what we learn is that He is for us exactly who we need Him to be. Because He is everything that we are not. He is what I am not. We are not independent. We need God desperately. And we need others desperately. We are not infinite. We are finite creatures and our days are absolutely numbered. We are fragile and we are temporary. We are limited. Though we try our hardest to act like we're not, it always catches up with us. We are not infinite. We are not immutable. We are always changing. And sometimes for the worse. We're not incomparable. We're not above all things. We are 
lowly and we are humble and we are sinful creatures without hope in this world unless God comes down to rescue us. You see where this passage is going. God is I am and we are not, but He invites us into a relationship with Him to trust Him as He calls us to follow Him just as He does with Moses. And He says, I will be with you. How do we know that's true? I'll close with this image. One verse that really stood out to me in this last week preparing for this message was in verses 7 and 8 where God says, I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them. He says, I've come down. That really caught my eye this time. I've come down. The transcendent God drew near. The independent God moved toward a relationship. The infinite God was entering into a finite world. Why? Out of love for His people. In the Gospels, oftentimes when Jesus is teaching or He is doing some miracles or healing people, He often reveals something about Himself. And at least ten times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says this phrase, which in Greek always elicits a response. When he says this Greek phrase, ego I me. Ego I me is Greek for the Hebrew version of to be. It's the Greek version of Yahweh. In English, it is I am. Follow this. He says, Ego I me, the bread of life. Ego I me, the resurrection and the life. Ego I me, the way and the truth and the life. Ego I me, the good shepherd. Ego I me, the light of the world. And he says this over and over again. In one instance, He's being confronted by the Pharisees and they're comparing him to Moses and to Abraham. And it's a long, amazing exchange. And Jesus says to them, Ego I me. He says, Before Abraham was, Ego I me. I am. And you know what happened? They picked up stones to kill him. Some people got what Jesus was saying when he said, ego, I me. They were accusing him of blasphemy because they said, you're identifying yourself with God. Who are you? And he says, ego, I me. One more example, in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night, Jesus, the night before Jesus went to the cross, when he was betrayed, and the soldiers and these chief priests come to arrest him in the garden. They say, you can go look at this up at the end of John. They say to him, Actually, he says to them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know what he said? Ego, I me. I am he. And people fell over. (laughs) Because when you enter into the presence of God, everything changes. When God reveals Himself people respond in one way or the other. You were either running away 
and want nothing to do with Him. Or you are drawing near because He is everything. When you hear God's heart for His people and you read His words, you learn of His Son. The personification of God's heart and God's voice comes in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And this is why we know that God really does see. And God really does know. He knows the plight of His people and He really has come down to deliver them even from their sins. He is. I am. How do you respond? Let me pray for us.